Good morning. Good, good, good morning. There it is. Hey, y'all. We're going to um, get started and let people so so scram now if you don't want the doors to shut in on you. <laughs> um, and as people get their coffee and mosey back in, we will welcome them with generous wide arms. Um, but uh, let's start with prayer. God be with you. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for this beautiful day. And we thank you for Easter. And we thank you for this time to be together. We pray for listening ears, open hearts, eyes to see you. We thank you for your incredibly complex and difficult and beautiful and wonderful scripture. We pray that it is opened wide to us, that we may receive it, but also that we may be true to ourselves, thoughtful, gracious, as we try to understand it. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Hey, y'all. This um, location is not great for a discussion, but this is definitely a discussion-oriented forum. Um, so the mic's in the middle. The mic is in the middle so that those who are watching later on Zoom can see the people talking and hear them. So if you can't make it to the mic to talk, if you have a short comment, I'll just repeat what you say so everybody can hear it. Otherwise, if you have a long comment or question, please make your way to the mic. Uh, Bob, start us off. What are the major philosophical differences between the major religions of the world? <laughs> Thank you, Bob. All right. What are the major philosophical differences between the major religions of the world? So I, um, you know, studied, studied and taught philosophy before I became a priest. And, um, you know, I think one of the things that I think about that is the more that I listen to people talk about their faith, the more interesting and complex and kind of non-linear is the philosophical perspective that supplies faith. And so, you know, I mean, like, like even to give like a super general thing about here's the like kind of philosophy behind Christian faith, I think like, um, I don't know, maybe a lot of people would say, oh yeah, I kind of agree with that. You know, but like, what does that mean in their actual lives? And like, if we were just talking about it in kind of a more free flowing exchange, how much of those principles would actually come up in the things that people list as like important to them about faith, you know? So, I mean, that's kind of my first thought about that is that um, the closer and more detailed that we are about the things that we believe, the more interesting and complicated it is. Um, but that's a great kickoff, and I'll, I'll come back to it at various points. Hal. Just as a follow-on question, what would be the principal things we have in common right. with our brethren of the Jewish, Muslim, and Hindu faiths? 
Yeah, okay, great. So um, the question was, what things do we have in common between Jews, Christians, and Muslims? Um, I took a Jews, Christians, Muslims class in, as an undergraduate, and then also um, took several courses uh, in Judaism, but also including Hebrew. I learned Hebrew for a time. I've learned six languages um, in my academic studies, and I've forgotten five of them. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, so, so one interesting thing, again, as kind of like prelude to, to fantastic questions, and um, I've written down as one of like the really difficult texts that I hear from people all the time as um, John 14, Five, which is, um, I don't have it in front of me, but uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one enters through me. Um, that one being like something that I hear from people all the time as uh, a real difficulty in believing because it feels to specifically exclude people that we know and love and also, people that we know and love who take their faith very seriously. Um, so, but kind of as prelude to that, I would say one of the interesting things to me, think about Jews, Christians, Muslims, is to think about like kind of organically how they arose. So Jesus probably had a whole bunch of the Torah memorized um, as a child, as a lot of ancient Palestinians did, uh, who were um, Jewish, uh, and so he was like penultimately, not penultimately, he was incredibly um, knowledgeable about Judaism. He was a Jew, <laughs> lived, lived, lived as a Jew, worshiped as a Jew, died as a Jew. And so uh, the Christ Christian community that came out of that, like if you remember from last week's reading from Acts, they were still, after the resurrection, they were still worshiping in the temple. And um, Christianity and Judaism began to kind of uh, grow apart as I think any, um, uh, as so many different things do grow apart over time. And just, I've given three of these presentations or so, and each one has tried to build on the other. Last time I did a forum presentation on art and religion, and I argued, or I suggested, that one way to think about different faiths is to think of them as um, deep, thoughtful, um, systems of belief that have evolved over hundreds or thousands of years, to think about those as analogous to um, different, not theories, different schools of art, different schools of art. So like, if you have the five different religions or a hundred different religions, um, sitting down like a hundred different artists to draw one still life, you will get a hundred different representations, none of which look exactly the same. Some are going to look dramatically different. And what's helpful about thinking about religion closer to art 
than, say, science, where there's like one answer for whether the bridge will hold or not under X amount of stress, is that when you have 100 different people doing a representation of still life, we do not think which one got it right. We think um, these very different schools, and by different schools I mean like Impressionism, Cubism, Modernism, abstract something. Um, uh, you're to have totally different views, and in many ways, um, knowing what goes into how they see the world will make that still life more interesting, not less. I think one of the interesting things to say about Islam is that um, I got to know my professor of uh, Islamic studies really well, her and her family, uh, and I tried this theory out on her, and I don't think she liked it too much. So, like, that's just as a preface, you know? Um, so, Judaism and uh, Christianity are like siblings. They grew up together. Um, all of our sacred documents are mostly written by people who knew the, the, the uh, Hebrew Bible backwards and forwards. But Islam was like 500 years later, 600 years later, and separated by several hundred miles. And so I think, you know, it's like a game of telephone, Middle East version, for how much of the story, how accurate will it be over 500 years and 800 miles, you know? So like that's to me the biggest difference between Judaism, Christianity, and Islam is Judaism and Christianity came out together, same place, um, not exactly same time, but you know, uh, they evolved together. And Islam was just removed by quite a bit. And so there are more stories in the Quran about Mary than there are in the New Testament. So this is a faith that took um, uh, Judaism and Christianity very seriously. Uh, now, in some ways, there are very different takes on those characters, what those characters mean, very different take on the prophets, definitely a very different take on Jesus, um, some degree a very different take on Mary. But again, thinking about systems of faith as more analogous to um, artistic schools, that like sense of like, well, did they get Mary right or wrong is like downgraded as a question to be worried about, and we can like sit and have a, a real conversation and learn from each other about how we see things very differently. Before we move on, any follow-ups on that? What do you think? Um, yeah, Mary Beth, why don't you just say it to me and I'll repeat it. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, they're all Abrahamic religions. Um, yeah, okay, you know. I think, like, as shorthand, that's helpful. Like, looking at the specifics, I don't know. You know, I mean, maybe. Um, here's an interesting question back at you. Uh, one thing to think about Mormonism, uh, Mormons, is that they are closer to a shared Abrahamic religion than they are to, like, 
Christians, Mormons. You know, I like, so I think of these things as objects of comparison. Some of these things are gonna be like more helpful comparisons and others are like, I don't know. Um, but like to pull back, I like deep respect, you know, um, for people who are living uh, in very different kind of religious and ideological backgrounds. I, I truly think that um, we have so much to learn from one another. Uh, and the things that we hold in common, I would like name as like a type of mysticism how to kind of like get to the core of the answer about um, our experience in the world. So like in, in the Middle Ages, this was kind of like called natural religion, like the stuff that you didn't need holy scriptures to figure out. And oftentimes what they talked about with natural religion is like when you're watching the sunrise or a child born or someone at the end of their life, there's something that is like deep there that unites us that's beyond words. And like we try to put words to it, that's the Holy Scriptures, but like that's something deep to us as people who evolved together over like 800,000 years, you know, in Africa. Like there's something that like very tightly unites all of us and we're trying to like express it and, and um, and we do that in very different ways. Again, I think of that expression as kind of like art, but it's like the mysticism. And then like I could try to tell you what I think about mysticism, but then it wouldn't be mysticism. It would be Joshua Daniels' like esoteric take on a, a string of words, which may or may not do good. Like I, I think watching the children's choir, I don't know if you guys saw that today, but like whatever that was, it was God incarnate, <laughs> you know? And like, um, I'm not gonna do better than that. Uh, definitely not gonna do better than that talking. But I can point you to it, which is what I'm doing right now. Yeah, next question. Hey, Joshua, how, uh, from a parish point of view, from yes. a parish priest point of view, yeah. how long a leash do you think you have to do something, say something? Or you, you just suggested I said something to a professor, she didn't agree with me, but in, in, this, in a congregation setting, you know, how, how far do you think you can go comfortably? Okay, help me out though. Uh, what's the long leash about as a parent? What's the long leash as a parent? Yeah. So we have or just re rephrase your question. I just don't know yeah, if I'm I... saying, you know, so we spent a couple of weeks on, let's look at the church from a women's point of view oh, yeah. differently. Okay. It's in yeah. the Bible here, but we've never really yeah. uh, pointed it out to you before. Yes. Okay. So maybe that was acceptable here. Yeah. But not acceptable somewhere else. So uh, I felt comfortable yeah. doing yeah. that here if we were somewhere yes. else. So something like that, you know, say, okay, but maybe not found in the Bible, maybe something, yeah. uh, whatever, we have reparations. We have a whole lot of things that necessarily aren't in the Bible yes. that we feel comfortable yes. here. So I'm saying, so when you're sitting around and the priests trying to figure out where are we going, what are we doing, what are we talking about, what's my sermon going to be about, you know, is there something, you know, some, some curves that you think, well, we can't go there. Yeah, okay? yeah, wow. Wow, thank you. That's a really great, tough question. <laughs> uh, yeah. So as kind of like, you know, the, one of the really nice things about the Episcopal Church is that um, it, this actually kind of comes out of our, our long history um, uh, developing through Great Britain, especially 
uh, as their common law developed, one of the things, one of the kind of theological principles that grounded Anglicanism is the Elizabethan settlement which is itself this kind of like legal code that took a long time to develop and it was like definitely not this way when Elizabeth lived, but that's how I present it because it's like easier to think about. Um, and that is like a, a series of compromises, um, especially about like, so my kind of elevator speech about the Episcopal Church is that in the Reformation, you know, we are born through the Reformation and, um, you know, uh, Henry VIII wanted a divorce, mostly because he wanted, I mean, for lots of reasons, but like mostly he wanted to like grab all of the land that the Catholics had, which in Great Britain and in England at the time was a lot. I mean, it was like a socio-political, geopolitical move that like very profoundly enriched him. So it was not just about like divorce. Um, but so Henry VIII kicks off all the Catholics. Uh, he dies. His daughter, uh, who's born from a Catholic Mary, marriage, Mary takes over. She kicks out everybody who won't renounce the king as the head of the church and go back to the Catholic Church. She dies. Elizabeth takes over and wants to figure out how to break the wheel, to use a Game of Thrones term, how to stop the cycle of violence. And the very basic idea, which developed over a couple hundred years, but like, let's just say Elizabeth had it, was what if we had a church that is not defined by um, uh, uh, agreement about how we interpret Scripture, a church not um, founded in that you agreed to a certain set of doctrines, but what if we had a church that was, that you are a part of that church if you are willing to pray together? That's the Book of Common Prayer. If we can pray together, then all the other things that we disagree about, at the time it was transubstantiation, um, but politics, uh, how we understand the virgin birth, all of that can be secondary as long as we can pray together. If we can pray together, we're a church. Now, we've like done a so-so job on holding to that core ethos. Uh, um, the church, the Episcopal Church in America was the only church not to divide, um, what do you call it, break apart, schism. Uh, during, in American history, uh, all the other mainline churches did over the Civil War. We didn't do that for a particularly great reason. We just didn't take a position on it, which is a type of cowardice, I think, not principled uh, stand. Um, but we did recently over the issue of um, uh, LGBT issues, uh, ordaining gay bishops, having same-sex marriages, um, the church in America, Episcopal Church, splintered over that. So we don't always hold to our ideals. Um, thinking about like what I would preach about and not, the sermon is not a two-way radio, and I'm really careful to try not to talk about an issue for which many people will naturally incline to be, to say something like, whoa, 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 that's not what I think, you know? And, and uh, when I'm in the pulpit, there's a sense of like commonality of viewpoint to some degree. And I, I try not to um, venture into an area that is about Joshua Daniel 
and not about the church. Not to say that I don't think we should talk about those things in the church. I'm in church right now and talking about all sorts of stuff that I would not talk about necessarily from the pulpit because there's a microphone right out there and you can stand up and say, well, you know, what about this? And I'll be like, oh, I didn't think about that. Great point. I was, my first calling as a priest was in Jonesboro, Arkansas, which is in Northeast Arkansas. And uh, Jonesboro, um, the church there, St. Mark's, it's like this really great place. It was one of two institutions in the town where you could be openly gay. This is in 2018. Um, and I didn't get that at first. Like, I grew up in Arkansas, born and raised. And, um, and uh, so I had a parishioner say, like, I'm not out to my parents, you know? I was like, You've got to be out to your parents, you know, like that's a hard conversation, but you got to do it. And uh, I didn't say that. That's like what I was thinking in my mind, you know. And then after being there for a year and a half, I realized that because um, uh, I, I, I traveled with couples um, who had come out to, actually they were outed by, on social media um, without their consent and um, uh, went with them to their family. Uh, they were preparing to never talk to their family again, is what it was like there. Um, that landscape is totally different than this landscape. I'm talking to our Summit kids, our high school group, and I, it took me a while to figure this out, and I'm just like slow in the brain sometimes, you know? And uh, I kept on saying things like, you know, we don't worship a God who is like punitive, you know, who's like looking to strike you and um, um, that you're only welcome here if you don't have long hair and um, you don't drink. Like that's the religion I grew up with, you know? I mean, that was like in the water. Um, that is not in the water with our high school kids, <laughs> you know? Like I asked them, you know, have you heard, like, heard people talk like this? And only one person um, raised their hand and she was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We went to New York once, New York City, and we saw this guy with a sign that said, you're all going to hell, you know? That was their, like, contact with, like, fundamentalism, <laughs> you know? It's just not a part. Anyway, so, like, I had to, like, recalibrate the type of, like, um, who God is uh, in contrast and distinction to, uh, for those goods, which is great. How close am I getting to an answer to your question? Okay. Great. So I meant for this to be free-wielding, uh, so uh, on topic, not on topic. Yes, ma'am. About what? Awesome events. Yeah. 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 
Great. So what I heard you say is um, those moments of awe are um, we are trying to develop spiritual practices to name them and experience them and to kind of like have them be a part of our lives. And those experiences are universal. Yes. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm totally, uh, yeah, that sounds great. Uh, the, the kind of where my mind goes uh, as a like um, uh, yes and type of thing, because I don't know, that's often what I do. Um, I was, so my hometown is Bentonville, Arkansas, which I mentioned a couple of times, like three blocks from the house I grew up in, the Waltons built a $2 billion art museum called Crystal Bridges. It's awesome. And um, I was going there all the time. And, and just one thing, you East Coast elitists, um, they bought all these paintings from New York and like the East Coast. And, and one of them was, shoot, um, oh, I'm not going to be able to remember off the top of my Thomas Aiken's uh, Spirit of Creation or Spirit of Freedom out of like Philadelphia. There's like this big New York Times article about like how wrong it was to take a painting from people who would appreciate it to Arkansas. I'm not kidding you, you know, <laughs> um, because like they, I mean, they say, yeah, I'm sure people in Arkansas will appreciate it, but nobody will see it because no one's going to go to this museum. But like um, the thing is that you like open an art museum in the deep south and like they had 125 times amount of people come in the first year than they thought they would have in the first year. Is like 200,000 people. Um, anyhow, so I'm like in the museum all the time, listening to people. And one guy um, came up to like an abstract painting, and he was like, uh, that represents nothing. Like the definitive judgment against this painting, you know? Like there's nothing in that work of art that is representative of the world. And... I wanted to say, it's not representational, <laughs> you know, like, it's the type of art that isn't representational. Some art is not supposed to be representational, you know? So um, all that to say is, I, I think that there is a, a human, totally understandable impulse to come up with, like, essentialisms, essentialisms. Religion is about this. I just said mysticism, you know? Um, and that's something that all humans experience. And I think that's like kind of right. But also, um, it can be about a lot of things, do you know? And so, uh, so there are some things in art when we're comparing these two things and trying to figure out what they have in common leads us to a type of answer that would be true of just about anything, you know? And is that how, how informative is that? So I think of religion as being a very strange thing, strange thing that is deeply connected to a lot of humans over time and across the world. And some of it makes sense and some of it doesn't. And trying, and for myself, being okay that there might be a form of religion that does not make a lot of sense to me. And that my first posture to that is not necessarily condemnation, you know? Um, but uh, also, I think, like, what you said about what religion is, I think there, is, there would be, like, this wide swath of, of agreement and commonality. And th those are things that we should celebrate. All right, what else we got?
All right, Lane. I'm going to take issue with a prior question as a premise for this one. Fantastic. So I would say reparations is deeply rooted in the Bible, but yeah, yeah, it's most yeah. deeply rooted in the Old Testament. And we do a lot of picking and choosing among about what we're going to find persuasive or compelling or convicting in the Old Testament. So there are a lot of laws in Leviticus that we yeah. would ridicule and are find purposeless in a modern world. So what principles do you bring to bear when you're considering the Old Testament about what we must hold true to now as yeah. opposed to what we can casually discard yeah. as irrelevant? Yeah. Wow, great, thanks. So um, part of the question I definitely did not get back to was kind of a more like topical, here's what's, here, here's some stuff that, uh, topics that I don't know, it's just not a, about us and here are some ones that fit really well. Getting back to the kind of what I think is the essential nature of, of religion or whatever uh, is that fundamentally, thinking about time, the difference between us as people and the people that are in the Bible is a fraction of an inch compared to human history, right? Um, so like Emerson was like really big uh, for me and coming to a more full adult sense of faith. And there's this really great quote from, I'm not gonna get it, I wish I had it with me, but like, um, if it's true for us, it's true for them. Like whatever was moving Moses to do what Moses did is the same thing that moves, moves in me when I do X or whatever, you know? Just, I'm sure that's what Emerson said. It was just that articulate and, and sweeping and catching, and he ended it with, or whatever. Um, sorry, apologies to Emerson. but. I don't know. I think um, there are definitely lots of parts of Scripture that feel very foreign to me and, you know, were separated by culture and time. But mostly, I think that a lot of the um, motivating narrative events come from a deeply human place, and therefore, with a little bit of um, study and context are, speak very powerfully to our present moment. And there are, there are moments um, on both sides of the ledger on reparations. Um, St. Paul and Philemon is talking about returning a slave to an owner. I don't love the place that he was at, St. Paul, where he came down on that line. Mostly it was return the enslaved person, but be gracious. I wish St. Paul had said where he says at other places, there is no Jew or Gentile, there's no man or woman, there's no slave or free. We are all one before God. That's not what he said. Um, and then there are other parts which we just did the book on where this like idea of reparations is like deeply rooted into some of the basic core values. Um, 
So I don't know. I mean, I think, shoot, I'm just trying to think about something that I think that is interesting about life that would not be relevant to the Bible or that there's not something in the Bible that would speak to it. I had this like list of things that I thought I'd be asked, you know? <laughs> they were like um, weird passages, like why, is the, why does St. Paul always talk about circumcision, you know? It's like really awkward to me to talk about in a modern context. Circumcision is like in the Bible a lot. Why, <laughs> you know? Um, Jesus curses a tree in Mark. So those are under the category of weird passages. And then there's the category of moral failings. Lot offers his daughters for basically sexual slavery. Um, then there's like theological failings, which is what I thought of as John 14:5 as a question mark. Theological puzzles, like what did Jesus know, you know? Like in Mark 13, it says Jesus doesn't know the time or the hour, only the Father does. And if Jesus and the Father are one, how can that be? And then there's like verses that like um, God commands evil, like genocide in Deuteronomy. Um, and then at the end, I was trying to think about like how, how is it that we like navigate through those things? And um, that kind of gets, I think, to what you're asking for, Lane. Like what is it that grounds us in these things? And I guess I want to say two things just kind of like straightforward that I would love to talk about for a really long time, and I'll just like not do that. But um, on the one hand, I think uh, I've got this passage from Rowan Williams about how very weird the Bible is, the, the, the collection of different types of literary texts that exist in it, legal code, poetry, narrative, um, abstract representationalism, um, over like, you know what, there's one part, there's one fact that I think you guys, everyone will really appreciate that I've got right in front of me, and that is the diversity of the Bible is as great as if you had written, if you, if you had within the same two covers, for example, Shakespeare's sonnets, the law reports of 1910, the introduction of Kant's critique of pure reason, the letters of St. Anselm, and a fragment from Canterbury Tales, all within the same two covers. And remember that the chronolo chronological span of the books of the Bible is even longer than the examples that I've just given. Uh, first principle is that the Bible is a weird text and let it be weird. There's something about um, European colonialism, I think, that pushes us to try to um, flatten difference, um, that everything kind of be within the scope of reasonableness. And that's like European value, I think, not necessarily a value of um, ancient um, uh, Middle Eastern uh, descendants of Eurasia. On the other hand, uh, there are some things that I absolutely use. Here's, here's a tough, here's a tough fact, just like trying to be specific here. In Mark chapter 3, after Jesus' family and the scribes and other religious and political leaders try to seize Jesus, 
Jesus speaks to them in parables. This is like, um, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And he follows that up with, um, truly I tell you, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. Basically, they accused Jesus of being a demon. Now, I remember hearing that passage as a kid and being like freaked out, you know, because it felt like there was something that you could do, whether you knew you were doing it or you didn't know, that would put you forever out of the reach of God. Um, ultimately, I think that the story so many of the stories from beginning to the end in the Bible are about grace and redemption and love. So those are like guiding principles that when I do come encounter with a, a passage that's really hard, that I try to like take the 30,000 view and look back at. Mark, for instance, intentionally puts a wrench into the machine throughout his text. In Mark, the disciples go from the ones who understand Jesus to the ones who are blind about who Jesus is. And Mark knows that the church that will follow Jesus will suffer from the same kind of blindness that the disciples did. And he means to treat that like an illness. Namely, people are going to read this text and think they know who Jesus is. I'm going, Mark, going to intentionally confuse them about that. So there are passages in Mark where Mark has Jesus speak hyperbolically, for instance. Um, passages that only after a lot of like thinking about the holistic life of Jesus, that individual parts will make sense. One thing to say about um, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness is that um, a few moments later, uh, a few chapters later in Mark chapter 9, when Jesus kind of reveals the point of his ministry, which is like sacrificial love, that he's headed to the cross, Peter pulls him aside and says, stop saying that kind of stuff, you're scaring us. And Jesus turns to him and uses what, this is the part that kind of takes a little bit of contextual knowledge, uses the worst form of reprimand that could possibly be uttered by any person, and that is, Get behind me, Satan. Jesus identifying his closest disciple, friend, as siding with demonic powers. Uh, this is like no, uh, serious, this is really serious that Jesus would align Peter in this way. So much so that you can imagine um, whoever blasphemes 
uh, against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness as applying most chiefly to Peter. No one gets reprimanded in the Gospel of Mark worse than Peter does in that moment. And very straightforward argument for thinking that what Peter just did was blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Jesus saying, do you want to follow me? You've got to sacrifice yourself. And Peter's saying, that's not the gospel. And Jesus saying, um, you are speaking against the Holy Spirit right now. Fast forward to after the resurrection. I just love this, what we just all witnessed in a staff meeting talking about the gospel today. Um, we did this like, you know, when you start laughing and you can't stop. And the laughing was like, you know, Jesus coming back with only grievances instead of forgiveness, you know, like he like comes to the, the, the upper room and he was like, all right, you know, I didn't see you at the cross. I didn't see you at the cross, you know, like um, uh, some of our political leaders always listing grievance after grievance after speech after speech. And you don't see Jesus come back with any of that. He was unlawfully, unjustly, unholily crucified in a cross, and he comes back with forgiveness, not grievance. And he turns to Peter, who had blasphemed the Holy Spirit, and he says, on you the foundation of the church will be made. So we have something in isolation. If whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but we look at the actual what happens in the Bible, and the person who does the worst blaspheming, Peter, is then put in charge of the church. So like, there's the, the, the principle is, is looking for those deep moments of grace. And it's not gonna be easy. It's not gonna be straightforward. There's weird stuff in the Bible. Some of that I can't explain at all, but some of it, looking back, they mean to lead you on a journey. They, meet, they mean to lead you on a journey of, um, only looking at the principles of grace and love will you be able to interpret a story like that faithfully to the message of Christ. Somebody want the last question? Well, how are we feeling? I, you know, this would be so much better around a table um, that we did like twice a week for four or five years. Uh, but this is all we got for now. Somebody want to end with the, something that came and they were like, I really... I really want this heard. Yeah, how? After all that was said, are there some real fundamental different reasons that Christians, Jews, and Muslims cannot have at least basically a common perception of the Holy Spirit and rules as to how we deal with each other? Um, are there any basic fundamental differences that would keep us from uh, communion with, uh, together in some way? A absolutely not. Absolutely not. I, I don't think so. I, you know, um, I remember saying something like in, with my Muslim professor, who's also Muslim herself, um, something to the effect of like, there's not magic. God's not about magic. You know, something like that, which I took to be a really important point, you know? And she was like, um, there's definitely magic in the Quran, man. <laughs> you know, like 100% magic, you know? And uh, so my response to that was like, tell me all about that. What, what, does, what does it accomplish? What is it? Um, and what, what does it mean to you? So I think, you know, the, the things that, you know, this— 
might seem trite, but the things that divide us, um, I think, are very interesting, should not be reduced. It, we should not say the things that divide us. Um, we're really actually just saying the same thing. You just need to listen to me better. Really being okay with there being genuine, authentic difference in how we see the world, being okay with that, not trying to reduce it to a single common expression that we all hold, but also looking for those things that, um, that do bring us together. And uh, there, I think, um, there's just an infinite amount of stuff. So final thought is, there's commonality in ideas and commonality of life. And we, you know, commonality of ideas is there. We need to do the commonality of life stuff, you know, where we're actually inhabiting the same room, listening to some of the same texts, breaking bread with one another. So that, that would be my hope, Hal, is that uh, we find we used to have an interfaith network. I always get so many interfaith questions in forums like this, which is awesome and I love them. It's like, that's my jam, but it would be great um, that that group uh, kind of re retired out of existence or into like corporality. It would be great if uh, someone who's really interested in interfaith stuff got us actually in the room together again, um, both to talk about our own stuff, but also to invite, we have so many um, Islamic and uh, Jewish brothers and sisters who would love that, who are really interested in praying together. Isn't that a good pitch to end with? Talk to me, seriously. Email me, jdaniel at coloma.org. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, y'all.